Welcome back to Who the Hell is This For? Today we are talking about the work of Sam Raimi. This is the Raimi episode, and I am super excited for us to talk about it. We are going to be covering Evil Dead 2, Darkman, and Spider-Man 2. Uh, before we get into that, once again, uh, please consider donating to a trans organization, uh, any other marginalized group, any sort of population that needs support. Um, please consider throwing a donation their way. Uh, but as we get into it tonight, you guys, what have you been watching over the past month or doing or listening to? What have you been what you been up to? <clears throat> um, well, since we last recorded, uh, we were able to do a successful Mario Golf tournament for charity for Hope House in Kansas City. Um, with That's right. Well, uh, <laughs> well, successful because it raised a lot of money. Yes. However... <laughs> A successful well, I, fundraiser, not a the, successful Mario Golf tournament. The whole the whole operation stinks to high heaven, frankly. <laughs> it was the it, we should clarify uh, we are broadcasting with Riley's ghost today because this was yes, a rest Riley in peace. Barker Memorial Mario Golf tournament annual annual. <laughs> the the picture that you sent in really or just left to us i should say really just like it took on a life of its own at the event what what ended up happening with it uh that became the trophy and it did go to debates on tap hell yeah so now am i am i just in their studio now yes yeah he hung you up in their studio that's awesome we should do it where every year we bring it back and we put someone's name on the back of the picture but you have to open up the frame to see that's I, I think that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and this is going to be a recurring theme, and it's going to be a traveling trophy. Yeah. But no, it was a great event. We were so happy to be a part of it, even though uh, the controllers I was given did not work and did not let me change my uh, club off of a putter. Uh, who's to say if I was too far from the TV or not? Certainly not <laughs> me. Um it was great. No, a great yeah. time, and I cannot wait for us to do more things like that in the future. want to give a, a special shout-out to our friends at Debates on Tap, First Issue Club, and Nightmare Junkhead, who were um, instrumental in setting that up. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of it. Um, we hope that some of our listeners, um, even if they weren't all able to come out, um, we know that there should have been you know thousands of you there um, if all of our listeners were there in person. But for any of you who were not able to make it, uh, please go ahead and at least check out Hope House. Um, they're a great organization yeah. in Kansas City um, that you should definitely consider <clears throat> um, donating to throughout this year. If you have any questions, please feel to reach out to us, and, and we're happy to hit you up with the link. I don't know if we specified, but Hope House is a domestic violence shelter uh, in Kansas City, specifically aimed at helping support women getting out of uh, violent or abusive situations and helping them get back on their feet. So it's a really cool organization and something that we were very happy to be a part of helping. Well said. Um, if you want to hear about the bullshit I've been watching, I'm happy to tell you that as well. Would love I, to. I did go see uh, Batman today. Um, I really liked it. I think in the moments after the movie was done, I was like, that movie fucking ruled. And then, like in the thirty minutes afterwards, I was like, "Oh, the movie had some had some holes in it." Um, but overall, a really good time. I thought Matt Reeves did a good job. I really like Pattinson 
as as Batman. He's mostly Batman throughout the whole movie. Like he's Bruce Wayne, very little of the time, um, which I thought was an interesting choice. But I don't know that it really missed Bruce Wayne. But he's definitely a better Batman in my opinion than a Bruce Wayne. But I thought it was I thought it was fun. Did you guys see that one? I did. See I it. have not yet. You haven't seen it, Ty? No, I still need to. Okay, Riley, what did you think about it? No I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it's very long. It is um, long. I had to. I had to leave and, and pee during the middle uh, of it. I just couldn't make it. Yeah, I. Uh, I think the biggest thing with this one was the whole, you know, the, I don't know what you want to call it. The. The, Twitter sphere was calling him, Twain, and I, I think people were just misinterpreting, what they were going for. It was more of a, you know, a, like. Yes, he was emotional, but as because he was just wrecked as a human. Um, <clears throat> yep. I feel like he just hadn't found his way. Like he had, he was still like almost reeling as Bruce Wayne, and I think that's why he spent so much time as Batman is because he was avoiding being Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Um, which I enjoyed. I thought the bat suit was great. Awesome car chase. Um, Colin Farrell was great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Wright as Jim Gordon, perfect casting. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Jeff, I thought you had already seen it. So when you texted it today, I, I thought it was your second time. No, I have bought tickets to it two other times, and we ended up canceling because oh. other stuff came up. So this was my third attempt oh, to okay. go see it. and was finally successful. But yeah. And so I, you didn't... You, I, I have to know... Did you get a refund or anything on those previous yeah. times? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just like he's like seventy-five bucks in on Batman. <laughs> well, that I think of that every time because it comes up on A to Z Horror all the time that Jack once bought. It took him four times of buying tickets to get out to go see it, <laughs> and he didn't get a never refund once got times. a refund. Oh my gosh. No, thankfully, you know, my number one theater is still Screenland, but uh, there is there is an AMC by my house. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's it's very easy to hit those theaters that are right by the house. Yeah. Also, yeah. I think if you buy your tickets on Fandango, you can reschedule up until the showtime. No matter what theater you're going to? I think so. Got it. Yeah, so the, the AMC one was, was easy. I just, you know got the refund you can do it you know like i think it's about like you said like about an hour up till showtime you can cancel for about any reason so yeah but i do think the the batman was very good um i do think it has a little bit of a spider-man 3 problem where i think they had one too many characters i think you could have i really liked the selena kyle stuff with catwoman um but, like, I think the movie would be the same without her in it. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you could have potentially had, like, the Penguin show up in the next one. Like, it seemed it seemed very full. Um, and that was the only thing. I don't know that it's necessarily a criticism, because, like, I think it all still works. But there's just a lot of, like, oh, this movie probably could have been 40 minutes shorter. And I don't think much would have changed um, in what they were doing. But... I'll, I mean, I'll see it again when it comes out on video. I'll probably buy it. You know what I mean? It's still, it's yeah, still I don't really, know really that, good. I don't know that I'm going to make it to the theater 
before it leaves, but I am going to catch it at home as soon as I can. What about you guys? What do you what else have you been watching? I have been watching a bunch of animated Batman stuff. Okay. Uh because I am super pumped to see Batman and I I love it. I think it's I mean, Mask of the Phantasm was what I started with, which is an all-timer as far as Batman goes. It makes the most of the Batman the animated series art style and, you know, the voice cast is all phenomenal. Long Halloween Part 1 and 2, pretty good. I liked them both. Uh, then I watched Justice League Dark Apocalypse War because I liked Justice League Dark a lot, but it's a very John Constantine heavy, which I love. Love John Constantine. Did not enjoy Apocalypse War at all. Yeah, I not, didn't either. Not for me. Really love the first Justice League Dark, though. Also, in the time since we have last recorded... I saw the 4K, uh, new 4K scan uh, screened at Screenland, which was incredible. And it was also the director's cut, which was my first time viewing that. And um, it is hard. Manhunter, right? Yes. Did I say Manhunter? Nope. No, you just started going. <laughs> That's how excited I am to talk about it. I... That's why I, as the voice of the audience, asked you what movie it was. <laughs> Thank you. We're really putting together a nice sonic landscape here. Yeah. Uh, but yes, of Manhunter, a uh, new 4K scan of that that is releasing on disc very soon. Fantastic. I mean, it might be my favorite movie of all time. It continues to climb up the ranks. I, I just I can't say enough good things about it. And I think the director's cut adds so much. And I cannot believe there are scenes that were ever cut from the theatrical release because of how important they are, specifically one where Will, after they kill Francis Dollarhide, Will goes to see the family that was Dollarhide's next target, and they are, like, freaked out. And Will has been beat to hell at this point, and he's like, looks awful. And he goes there in the middle of the night, and, like, the husband gets his gun, and he's like, I'm Will Graham, I'm with the FBI. And they're like, is everything okay? And he's like, I just wanted to see you. And then just leaves and like very it's it toes so much into that like you know what Will's mental state is because that's played up so much at the beginning of the movie with uh with Hannibal and it just you lose so much taking that scene out of the movie. It's incredible. I love it. I love Manhunter, I love the director's cut. It's all good. What can I say? It would have been incredible if when you saw it reskinned in 4K, that you're like, actually, this movie kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, I no longer like this. <laughs> oh man, a lot of bad, a lot of bad choices in there. Or I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad it was a good yeah. experience. I I also rewatch Martyrs. Uh, speaking of good experiences, uh, I mean, Martyrs is a Fun very heavy. It, it is a heavy movie, and it is a bad time but it's also like it's so good and it is very moving and very affecting and just really really great stuff anyway yeah martyrs i watched that last night it's so good i love martyrs and i know it's a joke for me to tell you to watch it jeff but really like you need to watch it 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 is worth your time i'm sure i'll watch it someday 
Well, the more you put it off, the more likely it is that it's just going to be when we do our French Extreme episode. <laughs> just the episode that ends the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All of our sponsors are going to pull out, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's going to be the one that gets us sponsors. <laughs> All right. Riley, what about you? Um, trying to pick a highlight. Um, I'd oh, say no. the highlight over this span or this month. Um, oh, God, what have I done to Skype? Uh, hold on. There you guys are. Um, has been the release of MotoGP Unlimited the new docu-series uh, documenting the 2000, uh, well, last year's MotoGP season. It is available for free on Amazon Prime or available to Prime members, however you want to classify that. Um, if you like Drive to Survive um, or don't like Drive to Survive, this is a much more linear take on the season than drive to survive it follow it goes eat race by race um i thought it was phenomenal a lot of back a lot of behind the scenes stuff that we don't get to see um a lot of conversations in the garage that they don't uh that they um so i'll i'll encourage everyone to check it out but you know i'm pretty used to shouting into the void on this topic so uh yeah i mean was, it sounds great it, it is. i i'm sure you, i'll give you, it a try what's it called rather moto gp unlimited that's on amazon prime it said. is um and i believe they totally fucked the launch of it um <laughs> yeah the the 4k came out um and you know obviously obviously in that sport English is not the first language. Uh, so a lot of it is subtitled. Something happened at the launch, some technical switch up that released a dubbed version of the show. And it was dubbed, it sounded like it was dubbed by some English podcasters just hanging out in a basement talking <laughs> over these guys. And it was terrible. And it lasted about 24 hours, but it's everything should be good now. Um, so the 4K option should be available. Um, what I love about that detail is that you would only know that it was fucked up if you were an early adopter of that show and watched it the very first day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is something you would do, right? And most of the rest of us yeah, would Moto maybe GP not Yeah, community was with. not happy. <laughs> it was a crisis. Huge controversy. Yeah, it was a crisis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We had like there were like journalists saying like I've heard I've been talking to my people at Amazon <laughs> to try and figure this out, <laughs> but we got to figure it out. So yeah, anybody that wants to check it out, it is on Amazon Prime. Um, I I remember be careful Patterson. which one you pick because there's like there's the regular HD and the 4K. There's it'll pop up as two different shows, so just make sure you have the 4K highlighted or don't. Yeah, I, I don't care. Just watch it. <laughs> watch it how you watch want. Watch it and leave a review. I I remember Patterson and Oxley both having a lot to say when that first happened. Oh, yeah. I was so bummed. <laughs> <laughs> but we got All through right. it and knocked it out in a weekend. So 
It's it's only eight episodes, eight okay, fifty minute episodes, so it it goes pretty quick. All right, so now let's get into you know let's get into the meat of today's episode, and we are talking about Sam Raimi. So the way this is going to work, we are going to get a rundown of some some of the history and some of the background for Sam Raimi, uh, his filmography, just a very quick rundown of that, a lot of the hallmarks of his work because I think that's so important when we talk about directors or specific styles or genres. We really want to capture what makes those what they are, and Raimi is a perfect example of that, so we'll talk some more about that. And then we will talk about Evil Dead 2, Darkman, and Spider-Man 2 to finish off the episode. So, Jeff, can you go ahead and give us just some background and history on Sam Raimi? I sure can. So Sam Raimi was born Samuel M. Raimi um, on October 23rd, 1959. We are almost birthday buddies. Um, He was born in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is just outside of Detroit. Um, Born to a conservative Jewish family. Um, His ancestors were Jewish immigrants from Russia and Hungary. Um, He has a couple of siblings. One of them we're going to talk about a little bit later. Ted Raimi is one of his frequent collaborators. Um, And then he's also got a brother and sister, um, who are um, somewhat involved in, in screenwriting and, and film and things like that. He did have an older brother um, who died when he was a teenager. Um, and Raimi has said before that that, that accident and that trauma um, definitely colored the rest of everything he's done with his life as far as filmmaking, things like that. So I thought that was an interesting detail as well. I, I um, think that makes a lot of sense because Raimi is somebody who he, I mean, First and foremost, most of Raimi's stuff is very fun, but he can really capture that. He can capture grief. He can capture that heavier emotional side of things and can really instill kind of a sense of hopelessness and just kind of feeling underwater, which we'll talk about kind of in a different way with one of the other movies in a bit. But I mean, as for somebody who can make such fun movies, he does have a really keen sense of those that darker side that heavier side of just the human condition yep definitely agree all right so we'll get into kind of uh remy's film career and how he got his start so um remy went to michigan state for a couple of semesters um and that's where he really got involved in student films um he had started shooting um, on, on films that uh, his father had given him and given him a movie camera one day when he was a kid. And so he used to make Super 8 films um, that he met. <clears throat> he used to make them with Bruce Campbell. So he met Bruce Campbell at Michigan State, um, and they were kind of involved in, in putting stuff together. So in college, he teamed up with um, his brother's roommate, Robert Tappert, and they shot um, Within the Woods which was a 1978 32-minute horror film um, that helped him raise money to continue doing other films. Um, and and so that, Within the Woods is essentially just Evil Dead. Yep. It, yep. So uh, I, I don't know if it is accessible anywhere, but from what I had heard, and Ramey has talked about and people who have seen it have talked about, it really is just basically test footage for the first Evil Dead and what made him decide to really dive into it and just expand on it. Yep, yep. So that was kind of the, the first big initial film 
that he had made. He made a couple of other ones before they, they fully made Evil Dead. So he made a debut feature film called It's Murder. Um, and then he also shot a seven-minute short film called Clockwork, also in 1978, that starred Scott Spiegel, um, who had also appeared within um, in Within the Woods. And so basically, after he had shot Within the Woods and these other two films, he had gotten enough... Um, you know, press and investors and things like that to turn within the woods into a full feature. Um, and so his full actual debut or his first highly successful film was The Evil Dead, which was um, filmed in 19 or was released in 1981, became obviously a huge hit and sort of essentially launched Raimi's career from there. So I, from I forget, was Raimi 22? When he well, I think he was twenty two when it came out, so probably twenty twenty one when he made Evil Dead. Yeah, he was born in nineteen fifty nine, so nineteen seventy nine he would have been twenty. It released yeah. in nineteen eighty one, so he was so probably 22. making this at twenty twenty one and released when he was twenty two. It's just it's unbelievable to think. I mean, like Evil Dead does feel like a student film, but at the same time, so much of I, I think Raimi deserves to be in the conversation of, you know, cinematic geniuses, like absolute prodigies, and he doesn't get seen that way just because he's so dialed in onto genre stuff for the most part. But I, I think Raimi is, he's like Spielberg. Spielberg is like an absolute once-in-a-lifetime type of talent, and I think Raimi is the exact same way. To put out Evil Dead at 22 years old is nothing short of incredible yep totally agree so after he wrote <clears throat> and directed evil dead he started working on his what's considered his third film if you consider it's murder his first film um he does he did a third film called crime wave which was co-written with the coen brothers um i don't know if you knew that, that they were collaborators um i did not know that mm-hmm. yep and so that the crime way was intended to be this like live action comic book, um, but basically was was buried by the studio. Like the studio had a lot of intervention into it, and so they they considered it not very successful because they really changed from what Raimi's version of that film was to what it finally ended up being. So then he went back and did Evil Dead Two, which obviously we're going to talk about um, today. Um, and then he went on to do a movie called Easy Wheels, which was like a spoof of outlaw biker films, uh, which I have not seen, but now I really want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. And then from there, he um, went on to do, he was trying to adapt um, comic books. So he was, a Remy is a huge comic book buff. And so was trying to adapt The Shadow into a movie, which if you've heard of The Shadow is a very famous um, you know, very, very famous comic book. Um, but they weren't able to get the rights to the shadow. So that's how they ended up doing Darkman. He basically created his own superhero, his own comic book hero that was unmoored to anything else, but obviously took a ton of, you know, inspiration from the shadow as well. Um, <clears throat> that was his first considered like major studio picture as Darkman. And then from there he went on to do, um, Army of Darkness, which was originally Evil Dead Three, got retitled, and obviously went much towards the, the hold on what comedy. What was the name of that one? I don't think it was Evil Dead Three. Can you tell me what the name of Army of Darkness was supposed to be? But they canned it. 
I'll pick that one up for you. It was supposed to be called Medieval Dead, which is the best title that anyone could have ever titled that movie, and I'm so mad that they didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't have that detail. Thanks for throwing that in Yes. There. It's just like, it's right there. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah. Um, so from then, you know. Verbal was... meme. <laughs> if, if nobody got me, I know Andy Vargas got me. <laughs> So after the Evil Dead trilogy, he moves into other genres. He does The Quick and the Dead. He does A Simple Plan, which is a crime thriller. Does a romantic drama for the love of the game, which is Kevin Costner in another baseball movie. Like Kevin Costner's <laughs> just like, put me in, coach. I'll do any baseball movie you want. Um, and then from there, once he gets done with the 90s, um, starts you know doing things like Spider-Man. So the first blockbuster Spider-Man was in 2002. Um, spawned obviously the two sequels. They all each made around 800 million worldwide. Um, so they were blockbusters. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we were there when those were coming out. Yeah. We were obviously huge fans. And I uh, um, saw that at the uh, the former Warren in Wichita that is now a mega church. Uh, off of I forget is that off of Rock? No, not Rock. It's uh it's over by uh, Greenwich. Over by Town East. The big pink building that's now a church. Oh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Um, uh, there used to be a Wendy's right next to it because we would go to the Wendy's and we would sneak in. Greenwich and Kellogg. Greenwich and Kellogg, yes. The, you're not talking about like the, the discount yeah. dollar thing. No, no that was on, that's no. on the other side of town or was on yeah. the other side of town. Now the discount dollar theater was just a hell of a time. That place just some, ruled. Just some local Wichita We're gonna, color. Folks. Yes. That's, a ch- that's I, a Cheddar's now, by the way. If anyone, <laughs> it is a Cheddar's. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, All right. No, th- so that Randy, that theater right? is where I saw Spider Man, and it was the first PG thirteen movie I ever saw in theaters. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, so, I have a lot setting the scene. Yeah. <laughs> It's important that you all understand where we saw Spider-Man the first time. It, it, you know what? Yeah. It will impact the rest of this podcast if you no. cannot know the streets as to where Tyler saw this movie for the very first Raimi, time. Raimi has become such a big influence on the way that I watch <laughs> movies and like movies and the type of movies that I enjoy that this is worth talking about. So, See, yes, you, know, you all need to know I saw it at the Green Bridge Kellogg Warren. If you do a, a tour of Wichita, you can drive down these streets and be like, oh my god, Tyler saw Spider-Man <laughs> right there. <laughs> and when I finally make a movie, some other kid 30 years from now will say, that's where he saw Spider-Man. Oh, Jeff, man. continue with Sam Raimi's history. Yeah, so, uh, Sorry. you know, then he does a bunch more shit. Um, he does, uh, he did... Um, collaborate again with the Coens. So he co-wrote Crimeway with them. He also co-wrote The Hudsucker Proxy, which I did not know. Oh. Um, and then he has some cameos. So he cameos in Miller's Crossing, Hudsucker Proxy, and Spies Like Us. Um, did you also know that he is in John Carpenter's body bags as a murdered gas station attendant? I believe I did know that. Body Bags is worth your time if you haven't seen it. It's very dumb and very silly, but it is super fun, and you get Carpenter being the Crypt Keeper. 
and it there's there's Sam Raimi, there's Mark Hamill, there are all kinds of like very fun cameos in that movie. Yep. So from there, uh, Raimi kind of takes a break, um, does a, a couple of different um, projects. The last movie he directed was actually Oz the Great and Powerful, which came out in 2013. Um, not a a super well-beloved movie necessarily by the film community, but it's, it's there. fine. It exists. He did it. Um, and then basically from there has been very choosy with the projects that he's taken. So he was, he was rumored for a bunch of stuff. He, he's produced. So choosy Direct, on anything he's directing, wise, but directing we do wise. need to talk about the producer career of Sam Raimi because sure. it is, there's a time when I would have thought uh, produced by Sam Raimi, that was a big selling point for me, but then the uh, the Grudge remake happened. Yeah, so, yeah, we should, we'll should we'll go through the producer stuff really quick. Um, he did produce a lot of TV first, so he was a producer on both the Hercules and Xena the Warrior Princess uh, series. Um, then he did, you're right, he did get into producing a lot of very mid-grade horror. Uh, the Grudge remakes, Boogeyman, The Messengers, 30 Days of Night, The Possession. He did produce Evil Dead in 2013. He did not that, direct it. I'm going to say that is different. Because yeah. that was also him, Bob Tappert, and um, Bruce were all executive producers on that one. Yeah. He did produce Don't Breathe um, in 2016. And a personal favorite of the pod, Crawl, in 2019. Um, okay, so it's not all stinkers. Yeah. And he's got some good production credits under his belt. I have not seen it, but uh, a film coming out this year um, that friend of the pod, Scott Whittle, likes is Uma. Uh, he helped produce that one that's got... Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, which is supposed to be very, very good. So, who knows? They're not all, you know, they're not all 2000s era blockbusters of Raimi, but uh, not all not all terrible. And, I mean, like, what? I'm not going to say that's like a mark against Raimi. I just have to, I mean, it's fun to poke fun that he produced the Grudge movie, which, and they really wrote on that production credit, too, um, and really touted that Sam Raimi produced it when he had literally quite nothing to do with the movie. But I, it's not a mark against Raimi at all for some of those movies. It's just fun to talk about because he has also, I mean, he's put his money into making movies happen and getting horror movies made and bringing interesting voices like Fede Alvarez, who did Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead remake, giving them more of a platform as well. So I think it is really cool, but you also have to kind of laugh at the stinkers. And then, obviously, the most recent thing that he has directed, he is directing the new Doctor Strange, um, which is, well, we're we're mixed until we see it, right? I think some of us are very excited for it. Some of us are a little, you know, nervous that it's not going to be everything we want it to be. But it will definitely be a movie. Um, <laughs> and probably something we're all going to go see. Oh, yeah. I mean... Raimi directs a big budget movie. You're gonna see it. Yeah. Well, and we see what he can do with Spider-Man too. So I'm hoping that he can bring yeah. some of that magic as well. 
All right. At this point, I'll turn back over to you, Ty. Go, go ahead and walk us through uh, what are some of the hallmarks of a Raimi movie? So the, the Raimi hallmarks, what you are really looking for when you you see Sam Raimi or you see a movie and there are these visual hallmarks that you're like, yes, okay. And sometimes auditory, too. Uh, one I thought of while we were talking earlier, I'll also add to our frequent collaborators list. But, you know, it's what makes a Sam Raimi movie a Sam Raimi movie. And I think one of the biggest thing is the use of the camera. He has a very kinetic filming style that he gets from his cinematographer and director of photography. No matter who he's working with, he really, really emphasizes camera movement and physicality of camera. It happens a lot through the Spider-Man series, which is what makes that one of the best comic book adaptations because it's as close to a comic book as you can get because of some of that camera movement and that camera work uh practical effects especially kind of splattery type of things are a big thing for sam raimi uh a few years ago Catherine and i went to evil dead the musical and we sat in the splatter zone and it's that's kind of become synonymous with what sam raimi does and just you know Kind of that very gnarly horror in general, because even in Spider-Man 2, his horror chops really show in a couple scenes there, and it's fantastic. And then his frequent collaborators. So you have Bill Pope, who did all the Spider-Man movies. He did Darkman. He did Army of Darkness. He's worked with Sam Raimi a lot. Bill Pope also is most probably well-known for um, doing cinematography on the Matrix series, which is why it I... I feel like it has such a distinct visual style. Obviously, I mean, that's what that series is known for. But a lot of that credit goes to Bill Pope. He, Bill Pope is to Sam Raimi what Dean Cundy is to John Carpenter. I think it's just they are they're synonymous with each other at this point. Uh, another one Jeff talked about earlier, Ted Raimi. Ted shows up in just about every movie that Raimi does and is always a delight to see i love ted Raimi. he's very funny and then obviously the big one you're not talking sam Raimi unless you're also talking bruce campbell 90 percent of the time they are best friends like one of the coolest relationships ever that sam decide he's like hey i'm gonna put my hottest friend i know in all my movies and <laughs> that's how we're going to make some money and bruce is just like the definition of he Young Bruce Campbell is an absolute beefcake, and now he's Sam Axe, which is a whole other, like, I mean, you know, there's a market for that. That's I'm trying to age that gracefully to be like Sam Axe. But anyway, that's beside the point. And then the other one that I talked, I thought about while we were talking earlier is Danny Elfman. I mean, Danny Elfman is also so crucial to mm. a lot of Sam Raimi's stuff, because Darkman, Army of Darkness... um, Spider-Man, all the Spider-Mans, Spider-Mens, um, all of those. So I think I think those are the biggest ones. And then uh, do you guys have any others that you want to bring up or specific examples you want to highlight on some of these things? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I was trying to see if there was any... Um, if he had any other collaborators... Um, I think Ivan Raimi, I'm trying to figure out is, yeah, Ivan Raimi is his brother. Um, his brother occasionally helps him do screenwriting. 
Um, okay. So Ivan wrote on Spider-Man Three, Army of Darkness, Drag Me to Hell, and Darkman. I don't know. If, I don't know how much of a primary writer he was on any of that stuff, but he at least collaborated with Sam on those four films. Uh, something else I wanted to talk about. We talked about it a little bit off mic earlier, but dolly zooms are a big thing that Sam Raimi does, and he loves them. And they are they're one of the easiest and most kinetic ways to move your camera. Like it's it's so it. I'm not gonna say easy to do, but it's one of the simplest techniques you can do that really adds a lot of energy. Uh, the Obviously, the most popular example is uh, Roy Scheider on the beach, um, uh, Captain uh, or That's Sheriff Jaws. Brody. Yeah, Jaws. Jaws I was getting there. I was getting there. It's <laughs> because it's in film school. It's referred to as the Jaws shot, that dolly zoom. But Raimi does it a ton. Uh, there is a sequence in Quick and the Dead where he does it like. 10 times back to back in increasing speed and it is so jarring but it's so it's such a cool final product when you get done with that i i love it so much i did find out one tidbit because i was just i was asking ty before this episode about the dolly zoom i knew it had a name but i wasn't totally sure um apparently it is it is heavily it is heavily influenced or is it's heavily used or re- referred to as the Jaws effect or the Jaws shot. It is also sometimes referred to as the Hitchcock shot. Yes. Um, okay. In uh, that yeah. It was Vertigo. first used in Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Yes. I feel very dumb for forgetting the Vertigo thing, but also, I mean, it's me, so I'm going to talk about Jaws. <laughs> like, that's just, <laughs> that's just what's going to happen, folks. Uh, something Raimi does in Quicken the Dead, too, that I really like is, uh, and you were talking about it a little bit, Raimi does, like, shooting through things um, mm-hmm. after something has been shot through. There's one effect that is really cool in the Quicken the Dead where um, Lance Henriksen's character is, shoot. he shoots the ace out of the little girl's hand, and you can tell... Like, because it's supposed to be a close-up on the ace, but it's also, like, a probably, like, a poster board-sized ace card that uh, Raimi is tightly zoomed in on. And then it blows through there with a practical effect of blowing the card open. Um, but that is very clearly, like, three feet tall. Mm-hmm. But it's pulled in tight on it. So he does a lot of things like that. Just a lot of really cool practical work. And I... There's another one that we talked about in the Crick and the Dead where mm-hmm. there's a, Keith a David. shot yeah, a shot through someone's head and then as as it happens, you see through the hole at the person who shot later. Um, and that's something that that happens a lot in, in a lot of his other films is is looking through people's bodies at what's been shot. I'm pretty sure it happens in Dark Man. I'm I'm it has to be in at least one of the Evil Dads, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But that's something that I've noticed a lot in Raimi's stuff. And then I'm not sure. Have we already mentioned the um, the transfect item in motion? The and projectiles. We have not. Yeah. So there's a shot I'll talk about later in Dark Man that uses that a lot with a a nail. Well, also happens in bolt. Evil Dead too. Um, yeah. With mm-hmm. the eyeball. Yep. Yeah. So there's these. That's what I love about a. a, a 
director like Raimi that has such specific things that it's not like all of his movies feel like the same because they they don't they all feel very separate and distinct from each other but there are things about them that you can tell immediately oh this is a Raimi movie because it's got all these cool things like he just he seems like he's having a lot of fun with the filming right and a lot of that I'm sure can be attributed to both Raimi and is Bill Pope, right, that you were talking about as a cinematographer. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of can be credited to to both of them and how they're playing with it. But there are shots that I feel like I saw there that I now see everywhere, right? Obviously, Mm -hmm. not that he created the dolly zoom, but the dolly zoom is in tons of, especially modern horror, feels like Mm -hmm. it uses it a ton. It's a lot slower in some of this stuff, but it is used. Like in, like, Hereditary, I think there's a big dolly zoom shot. Um, but yeah, you can see these things that become very, they were groundbreaking at the time and become very fundamental in how other people do their filming. And not everybody uses those same shots the same or the right way, right? Not all of them use them to the same effect, but it's cool to see things start with Ruth Raimi and Mm -hmm. then get taken and used and influenced by others. Something else I want to talk about, while not necessarily a visual hallmark, but and I I say this in the loving the most loving way possible because it is not it's not a criticism or anything like that like this is very much an appreciation of Raimi but I mean Raimi torments his actors but in a very loving way and it's only the it's only the people who are like you know the people who have a really trusting relationship with Raimi like Bruce Campbell and that was a big part. I mean, that carried over into the Evil Dead remake. And, you know, for better or for worse, maybe you shouldn't be looking at actively doing this to your actors. But also, like, knowing that you're hiring actors who are like, uh, right. I understand this is going to be messy. This is going to be grueling and very physically uncomfortable. And there was a clip circulating a few weeks ago, uh, like the day after we decided to do the Raimi episode, that was like, a talking head interview with Raimi and somebody else and how Raimi was just actively tormenting Bruce. And <laughs> he's just like, yeah, no, watch, I can make this guy do whatever I want. And just completely messing with him. And it's, it's such a cool clip and I need to find it again and share it. Cause it's so, so funny. But now that's, I, I think people misunderstand that. And like they see, some of the terrible conditions that actors are put in now, I think that is very different than what Raimi does because Raimi is doing things for a shot, for a specific purpose, and also, like, he's clearing it with these people ahead of time. Like, they know it's going to suck, and he knows it's going to suck, but they're all going to do it. And it's, it's, it's so synonymous with how Raimi has, like, made his films. So yep. with that, are we ready to move into our first movie that we have talked about? Let's talk about, or that we are going to talk about. And so let's get to Evil Dead 2. So Evil Dead 2, while Evil Dead is possibly, Evil Dead is a more through and through horror movie. Yes, we all know that. Evil Dead 2 is where I think Raimi really found his tone because he brings in that humor. He still does the splatter elements the horror elements but he does 
so many more weird and fun things too. And I think that is more indicative of Raimi's style overall. Evil Dead might be a better through and through horror movie. I know we've talked about this off mic plenty of times because I think, Riley, you prefer Evil Dead to Evil Dead 2, don't you? I do. Um, not that I have problems with e- or with Evil Dead 2 by any means, but I if I had to pick one to watch on any given night, I'd pick e- the first one over the second one. Yeah, and I mean, it is more of a actual, not actual, but a, you know, traditional horror movie. It, it's... It's more akin to Texas Chainsaw than anything else, I feel like. It is a very grimy, dirty, and mean movie where Evil Dead 2 is having much more fun with the concept, and it's it's kind of softening some of those harsher edges that Raimi really brought in Evil Dead, but not for, you know, not to the movie's detriment. Well, there's almost two, like, in Evil Dead 2, there's, there's some elements in it that are almost like slapstick. You know what I mean? That that aren't present in the first one. And I think neither one of them are are stronger or more important than the other. But, like, it's clearly a very different feel in Mm -hmm. two than it is in one. I think I totally agree with what you're saying. I think one is not as, not straight laced is not the right way to say it, but it's, it's more. It's a fastball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's more straight up horror. And mm-hmm. I think the second one, like you said, you're talking about softening edges. I think it starts to really go in the direction that like Army of Darkness ends up being. Yeah. Right? Like you don't go from Evil Dead to Army of Darkness without, you know, Evil Dead 2 kind of being the bridge between the two of them. And you mentioned slapstick, and I'm so glad you did because, I mean, a whole subgenre was coined essentially by Evil Dead 2. I mean, Dead Alive had a lot to do with it as well. But I mean, splatstick is what Evil Dead 2 is and is, I feel like, largely credited with kind of the establishment of that very niche subgenre of not just horror comedy, but like Three Stooges style gags in our very gory horror movies. And that so much of that has to do with Evil Dead 2. So what... Overall, what do you guys, you know, what do you guys think about Evil Dead 2? And how how many times would you say, like, because I would say this is probably my, like, fifth time watching Evil Dead 2 uh, for the podcast. How many times have you seen it? Uh, this was this was uh, third time for me. I think this was my second or third time. Because I remember the first time I watched, I think I watched Evil Dead 2 before I watched Evil Dead um, I, I think that's the order I watched it. And I remember the first time I saw Evil Dead 2, I don't remember liking it that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is common with me, unfortunately, with like really good classic horror. Uh, I think I watched a lot of them in a time where I just didn't have necessarily like a, a very big horror background. And I, I was doing this thing where I was like, oh, you know, like I'm sure it was good at the time, but like it's not very good now. And I just don't think I was able to appreciate mm. some of this stuff the same way that I, I maybe do now. So after my second, and I think I said this is my probably my third watch, um, I think the last time I even rated it on Letterboxd, I think I only gave it three stars, and I think it'd be up to four for me now. Um, and that's probably even low compared to you guys. I'm sure this is very, very high for you guys. This, I mean, this is a five star for me. I've yeah. I've quit rating stuff on Letterboxd, but... 
this is one of my favorite horror movies. I love it so deeply. When we did, so the first, my first birthday of the pandemic, uh, when we canceled everything and decided to watch a movie over Rabbit or some other um, like group share. Netflix oh, no, party. Was it, yeah, the Netflix party. Yeah. Did we do Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2? It was a it double was feature. Yeah. Some we of did us both? stuck around okay. for a double feature. Yes. I forget, because I know, <laughs> I feel so bad. I'm pretty sure we did Evil Dead 1 first, and that's when most of the guys' wives were also yep. around. Yep. <laughs> Which was a mistake, and we should have flipped that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, there's there's really no way to contextualize the tree scene. There just isn't. You can, you can never prepare anyone for it. I but I yep. do like. I mean, so much of Evil Dead Two. The reason I bring it up, not to just bring it up as the you know the shocking, upsetting scene of Evil Dead that everyone always talks about, but even Raimi. Evil Dead 2, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how it's essentially a remake of Evil Dead, but with a bigger budget, with more of the comedy elements, and it, Raimi has kind of talked about, like, it's the movie he always wanted to make, but didn't have the budget or the clout to make with the first Evil Dead, so he's, you know, he's like, sure, let's just do it again, and so he revamped things, added more of what he wanted, and then the the tree scene kind of seems to start to go in the same direction. And then he changes it entirely. And it is more her being just flung through the forest and dragged by the trees. Um, so not nearly as visceral and upsetting as the scene in the original. And I think it, it kind of speaks to what Raimi did with evil dead Two as a whole. And then, I, I feel like I am dominating so much of the conversation on this movie, but we also have to talk about how Evil Dead 2 gave us one of the most iconic horror images, or just, I mean, so many things you could say are incredibly iconic from this movie, but the most iconic thing is the chainsaw. Like Absolutely. Yeah. I'm I work at a brewery that has a has Ash's chainsaw hanging above the bar that you are supposed to order underneath. Like it is so ingrained in in horror and just the Bruce um Bruce, or Ash cutting off his hand, attaching the chainsaw and the scene with him cutting off his hand is hands down. I am going to say like Bruce hands Campbell down. hands down. Uh, hands off. <laughs> all the way off. Bruce Campbell is one of the best physical comedians we've ever seen. Oh, it just incredible. Like Three Stooges, Marx Brothers, Buster Keaton, like Kramer. Buster Keaton is probably more of a Johnny Knoxville type. Yeah, Kramer, Michael Richards, uh thank God Bruce Campbell didn't go quite the same direction. I mean, the scene where Ash cuts his hand off it's it's some of the most impressive impressive physical acting I've ever seen. Well, especially when you look at it, you know, in a in outside of the outside of the scene itself, you know, you're mm-hmm. and you just take a step back and it's like 
here's a guy just hamming it up just standing in a kitchen set pretending to fight his own hand yeah no 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 other threat no uh you know just bruce campbell doing all the work in this scene and it's like i wonder obviously though they were like prop bowls and prop plates but i wonder how sturdy those dishes that he is smashing on himself are because i mean it's Raimi making the movie so they Slip and they a real break one in there. <laughs> yeah they they break so satisfyingly that like they, they can't just be like you know very fragile like easy breakaway dishes like he's going to town on himself Love watching Ash go to town on himself with his hand. <laughs> hey, you know. <laughs> just a couple of grown men appreciating each other's strength. That's There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I think what, what really shines, everything else aside in that scene, but what really shines is when he has, quote unquote, knocked himself out and the hand is dragging Ash across the kitchen floor by grabbing and pulling on the floor, and Bruce is just scooting his body forward a few inches every time as he reaches and grabs and pulls and slides forward as the hand is trying to grab the kitchen knife. It's it's so it's just so talented. Yeah, I think it's something that if you tried to not not if you tried to redo it, but I just think that there are not that many people who could have pulled that off to start with right now that they have something that exists they could try to probably emulate it but it's just so rare that somebody would be able to like come up with that you know to begin with a hundred percent something else i really like about evil dead 2 is the structure of the movie where it is it's just ash and his girlfriend and he, you know, it is a very tight knit, like it's almost, it's a bottle episode, but it is a very tight, like small narrative that is just the two of them. And then it brings in these outside factors after all of this carnage and chaos has already happened. And I, I love it. I love the way it is structured. I love how there are phases to it. And then you find out, you know, Henrietta's in the basement and all hell breaks loose from there. Totally agree. I think the movie changes changes what's going to be doing. Um, I don't know. It changes what it's going to be doing. It goes in a bunch of different directions. It always keeps you guessing. You know, obviously if you've seen it again, there's so many different things you pick out each new time that you watch it. Yeah, absolutely. I like it it is infinitely rewatchable for me because of that. The next movie that we are going to talk about is Darkman, but before we get into that, I do want to mention Riley had some catastrophic audacity failure uh throughout this. You might hear us mention it a little bit earlier in the episode. Um, I don't remember how much is going to stay in, but he had a lot of issues with audacity and just getting it to work tonight. Uh, so Jeff and I are going to finish the rest of this episode on our own. And that's probably why you have not heard much of Riley tonight. So 
So sorry about that. We're going to figure that out going forward and see what we can figure out for <clears throat> Riley. We will be having, uh, we will be making Riley's points for him. So yes. So you hear either Ty or I arguing with ourselves, you know, just pretend that one of those is mm-hmm. Riley um, and it'll all fit better, fit better together. Or just do what you always do and blame it on my head injuries. That's also very easy to do. <laughs> But yeah, so our next movie is uh, Darkman. I almost said Evil Dead 2 again. <laughs> I'm not done talking about it. But uh, Speaking Darkman. of head injuries. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Darkman. Darkman is where Sam Raimi, this is where you really see the transition from something like Evil Dead 2 into what he ends up doing with, uh, with Spider-Man. And the all of his stylings are so present in this, and also his appreciation for the superhero, for the comic book type of movie. It it's all very, very present with Darkman. Yeah, I would make the point that like just like we were talking about the Evil Dead trilogy and how one flows into two, two changes a little bit, gets a little bit more silly, slapstick, transitions into three, which is very much along those lines. You know, this is where, like you said, goes from Evil Dead to Darkman. You can see the threads of Raimi's Spider-Man films in this Darkman feature. A hundred percent. And so there's so many things that... And this was my first time watching Darkman. I think it was your first time watching Darkman too, right? And And I I believe it was was also Riley's. Yep, yep. So new for all of us. Um, I dug it. I Yeah. I almost would say that this is equal for me with some of the other Raimi ones. Hard to say if it's equal to Evil Dead 2, but I definitely think I like it just as much as some of the Spider-Mans. Um, it's up there for me, for sure. It's very, I it's, like Dark Man. It is deeply silly. Um, in like a... Like, there's almost some like 80s or 90s like creature feature stuff mm-hmm. going on in this movie. Um, so, for those of you who haven't seen Darkman, I'm assuming a lot of people have if they're listening to this episode... But because it's one of maybe the quote-unquote lesser-known Raimi's, I'm just going to give you a quick breakdown of what's happening in Darkman. If you have not seen it and you have access to Shudder, go watch yes. it as soon as you can. It is go so... Go ahead and pause here. Yeah. And then go and watch it and then come back. It's just so deeply... Like, it is as much a distillation of Raimi's interest and personality as Evil Dead is. And one could even say possibly more than Evil Dead because it also shows how much of an appreciation he has for the superhero movie. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So here's the here's the synopsis. This I'm reading this straight from Letterboxd, but I think it's actually pretty good. So Dr. Peyton Westlake, who's played by Liam Neeson, <laughs> which is just a delight uh, in this movie. Uh, so Peyton Westlake is on the verge of realizing a major breakthrough in sy- synthetic skin when his laboratory is destroyed by gangsters. Having been burned beyond recognition and forever altered by an experimental medical procedure, Westlake becomes known as Darkman, assuming alternate identities in his quest for revenge and a new life with a former love. Former love played by Francis McDormand as well. Also, yeah, so I'm so used to seeing Liam Neeson and Francis McDormand in such different films, right? (laughs) Obviously, Liam Neeson, for most people you know, reemerged in their lives with Taken, 
right? I'm going to say reemerge because he was obviously a successful star beforehand, but then has kind of crafted his newest identity as an action star hero mm-hmm. with Taken and subsequent movies. Frances McDormand, obviously, is known for her highly dramatic roles, also mm-hmm. has done a lot of Wes Anderson, you know what I mean? Like, both, there's all both these could be considered Cohen's. prestige actors. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Actors that I would not have placed in this movie. If you're like, who was in that Darkman movie by Sam Raimi? Before I had seen it, I would not have guessed Liam Neeson and Brandon McDormand in a million years. Would oh, never yeah. have put them in this movie. But they're both great in what this movie is trying to do. So I, I mentioned before, this movie is silly. And it is silly in that there are silly scenes. There's the ways that Liam Neeson is speaking that are that's really funny. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of this, like, where um, the medical procedure that kind of brings him back to life, even though he, like, doesn't have skin, <laughs> like, <laughs> is supposed to, it's supposed to essentially make him a little bit crazy, gives him, like, super strength and things like that, and doesn't have, like, yeah, he can't feel pain. For pain. He can't feel pain. But it also makes him crazy because he has no sensory input, basically. Mm-hmm. And when they let Liam Neeson, like, go nuts a little bit, it is great. I mean, he he does the Raimi version of a man going nuts because his skin's been burned off better than almost anybody else could, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, something else I want to talk about, and it's, it's so present in so much of Raimi's other stuff and why I have come to realize even, and I'm, people might get mad at this, whatever, even Spider-Man 3 has more heart and is more earnest than the MCU trilogy with the Tom Holland Spider-Man just because Raimi knows exactly how to take it seriously but also have fun with it and he he is very earnest and so it even the corny and you know quote-unquote lame things he does are for a purpose and are supposed to be structured that way and he appreciates it. This is what Raimi likes. And he is making a very earnest superhero movie. And he's very earnest in this very silly, dark, taking itself way too seriously Darkman movie. Like, he's called Darkman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a. It's also a very 90s movie, yeah. right? This movie in the is made best way. in 1990. Yep. And so... It's got all of the the action sequences from the 80s. It's starting to kind of evolve into the 90s sort of thing. Um, there's all these really big set pieces. Not only like just the lab and things like that that exist. I mean, this lab felt like it could have been easily put into Spider-Man 2, which we'll talk about next with Otto Octavius. Like, Raimi just loves building these like big, intricate contraption like things for science right yes it's like not the science is not small in like little slides it is big and visible like the microscopes are huge the machines <laughs> are massive they spin they light up they don't need to do those things but the server do. rooms huge <laughs> terminals like yeah so like everything is just you know it's 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 big and it's loud and like you mentioned it's it's a little bit corny but like it's so earnest in its corniness, in its quote unquote corniness. I'm saying corniness mm-hmm. in like a, a very I love it 
sort yeah. of way. In in the way that somebody would identify it as like being some cheese or being some schmaltz. Yes, yes, for sure. It is. I think kind schmaltzy of... is almost better than corny to describe yeah, what Rainey is Schmaltzy is better. Doing. I like that you say it that way. I would agree. I will say that there is something about Raimi and the schmaltz that he has in his films that I think uh, can really can really turn people off. I think it's important mm-hmm. to like talk about that. Like Raimi is not going to be everybody's favorite director because I think a lot of people see it on the surface as schmaltz and it is that right. But there's also so much depth behind it and you can, and you can pull so much from a movie like this, even if it is a little bit schmaltzy like that, um, that I just, I don't know. I think there's something really, really fun and really cool about this movie, even if it does have surface schmaltz for sure. Oh, and I mean, like you said, it's not going to be for everybody, but if Raimi is your thing, you are going, that schmaltz makes it 10 times more endearing. Oh, and yeah. that's why we love these things that we do yeah. that Raimi gives us. You know, as we're kind of looking back on, you know, how does Darkman fit in some of those hallmarks of Raimi that we were talking about? I've got a couple I want to bring up. I'm kind of curious mm-hmm. what's on your list. So, one of the big ones that we talked about was camera movement. And there's something very kinetic and familiar about Raimi's camera movement throughout all of his films. And we talked about frequent collaborator Bill Pope. Um, and I'm pretty sure we talked about this already, but I think he was, yeah. So, he's a cinematographer for Darkman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a couple of scenes that we mentioned earlier that we were going to talk about. One of those being, there is a, if you have not seen the movie, by the way, take turn it off now, we're going to do spoilers. There is a scene at the end where the um, they're on the big uh, like building structure. And basically, uh, Darkman is trying to get Francis McDormand's character back from the clutches of this, I don't know, evil city of Durant. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's not even Durant. It's the, it's oh, the like, that's city right. planner the guy. guy. Yeah. Building developer, real estate yeah. developer. I don't know. I Donald do, Trump I do really love Durant, and I want to mention him. Um, yeah, we'll come he back. Also, to, we'll come he back comes up in, um, he recently was mentioned in Into the Mouth of March Madness by our friends at uh, uh, Nightmare Junkhead in Dr. Giggles. <laughs> That's a great episode. We should, we should yeah, we'll definitely yes. play that. Um, but the, one of the things I wanted to talk about is on that building structure, um, the the building developer, and I need to get the guy's name so I don't have to just keep saying building developer. I yes. think it's, uh, is it Colin Friels that's doing Lewis Strack Jr.? Yes, I believe so. Because uh, Larry Drake... Right. Larry Drake is who played Durant. Is Durant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Lewis Drag Jr. is the character. Uh, building developer might be just as good of a name. I don't know if anybody's going to remember yeah. Lewis Drag Jr. But um, he is basically revealing his entire evil plan of what, what has happened. Um, and he's like, I don't care because I'm basically going to kill Darkman anyways. And he has this giant, like, nail gun. But like it's a like, bolt gun. It's a bolt gun, but it looks... I don't even know if it's the kind of thing you would actually use on a construction site or not, but it's this giant pneumatic bolt gun, and he's shooting bolts at him from, like, four feet away. It's not even like he's very <laughs> far. 
and he's missing by like a lot. So like you're not doing sure if he's doing it to fuck with him or what. But when he's firing the bolts, what I'm getting back is the camera movement. You you're doing a lot of these shots where they the bolt is in the middle of the shot. It's like framed in the rectangle. Mm-hmm. And everything around it has like motion lines, like it's moving, and it, it feels like a comic book panel shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels like it could be in a comic book panel, it could be in an anime movie, you know what I mean? Like it's just it's so interesting by itself yes. of this kinetic thing that's moving, and it's just this little bolt in the center. Um, but that is such a Raimi shot for sure. Mm-hmm. He he also does this other thing. Sorry, do you have a thought on the bolt? No, thing? I was just going to say. It's the exact same thing he does with the eyeball in uh, Evil Dead 2 when Henrietta's eyeball gets popped out, which also Henrietta is the Ted Raimi appearance in Evil Dead 2, uh, in case you are not aware. I don't think I connected that. Yep. In full full prosthetics and makeup, that's Ted Raimi. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, There's another shot, um, and Raimi does this thing. I don't think you could really consider it like a Dutch angle. But he does a lot of, like, Dutch angle, like, turns, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the character will either be will either be diagonal and it'll turn straight or it'll be straight and then it'll turn diagonal or they'll, like, flip it around. And he does that in everything. It's in yeah. all the Spider-Mans. It's in Darkman. It's in the Evil Deads. Um, and that's such a specific type of shot that's in all of his stuff. He also does a lot of, um, like, half face shots. So from like the bottom of the bridge of the nose to like the forehead mm-hmm. um, to show, you know, emotion and basically just the eyes and things like that. That is also something that I noticed that is in like el- almost every single film I watched over the past two weeks to prep for this episode. It's in every single one of those. Yes. Yeah. A lot in Quick and the Dead. Yes, for sure. Which in I mean, makes so much sense because it is a Western type of shot. Yeah, I agree. Uh, something else I want to talk about with with this, and I did not expect it at all, and I should have. I texted our group text as soon as it happened, uh, because the movie closes with, so uh, Darkman, you know, he is shedding his old life. He is completely moving on. He is not going to be uh, what Peyton uh, Peyton Westlake anymore. He is not going to attempt to reconstruct his old face or his old identity, and he disappears from Francis McDormand's life and takes on a new identity. And the closing shot is him doing this. It's the um, the voiceover of the letter he left her, um, talking about how, how he's gone. He's not going to be living this life anymore. The old him is dead, and he's dark man now. And it's panning over a crowd, and I knew it as soon as you see the back of his head but then he turns and it's a bruce campbell and i was like i should have expected it and i didn't and it's it's the best way to end that movie uh like it's just it's such peak raimi and i love dark man for everything it does including the bruce campbell cameo to round it out yeah i totally totally agree there's just so much so much in this movie we didn't even really talk about like all the goofiness of dark man like taking different identities and yeah like, there's two durants there's you know what i mean and that's something that is is so unique in that they're just like i don't know what's the most fucked up thing we can make oh well, let's just make him do body doubles the whole film um with liam neeson's neeson's voice coming out of him 
Um, I think one of my favorites is the first time he does it, and he goes to the uh, the coffee shop and is trying to like pick up the cash, but then he's realizing he has to talk to them, and he doesn't know what that guy's voice sounds like, yes. and so he just talks like he's Liam Neeson, um, <laughs> which is in- incredible. Um, yeah, so it's just a, I really, really like dug this movie. I think this is going to be a frequent rewatch for me because it is so goofy and has so many of these things. Yes. I could talk about this movie forever, but we should... Anything so else I, you want to hit on this one, movie for? One thing I want to mention is I don't know. It's never been addressed as a reference or an inspiration, but Dark Man came out in 1990, and Darkwing Duck came out in 1991. <laughs> and while obviously tonally very different, Darkwing Duck's costume is very similar to yeah, the dark man costume with the fedora and the trench coat. I think, I mean, it, there's, you can't say there's no influence. Yeah. Sure. Like it, it has um, to, you can pull, you can say pulling from the shadow, right. You mm-hmm. know, is, which is where dark man kind of pulls from. Cause they wanted to do the shadow first. Um, obviously there's all the, like the noir stuff. That's also in dark wing duck. Yes. Like, they do a lot of like, you know the duck, the duck voice, and like she came into my office, <laughs> legs for days. You know, like it's it. Um, that's a great. That's also a great series. I should probably. I love Darkwing Duck. Yes, that was one of my favorites as a kid for sure. Mm-hmm. I think I got more into Darkwing Duck than I did to Ducktales or Tailspin. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But I I love all three of them. But Darkwing Duck just is so so good. <laughs> We could talk about 90s cartoon superheroes for... Yeah, we'll do that in another episode. But other famous superheroes, let's move into the Spider-Man 2 portion of today's episode. And, I mean, this was Riley's pick. Riley is one of the most vocal... Yeah, pour one out. Uh, Rest in peace again. (laughs) (laughs) We need to hold another tournament. Uh, I mean... Riley is one of the most vocal Spider-Man fans I know and has been our entire life. Like yep. pre pre extended universe, pre MCU, pre amazing Spider-Man, all of that from the get-go, Riley has been the biggest Spider-Man fan I have ever met. And it he lives and breathes it and I was so happy that we decided to do a Raimi episode because there really was something for all of us here to bring to the table. And Riley has actually, he talked about a little bit, he wanted to make sure it got included, that he might actually prefer Spider-Man 1 to Spider-Man 2. And I I agree with that because Spider-Man 1 does have so many more of the Raimi-isms and Spider-Man 2 seems much more dialed in and is a better kind of studio comic book movie but i and i mean i i feel like spider-man 2 is the peak of the superhero genre because this was also my first time seeing it and i hadn't really realized that oh that's right i forgot about that some of the just best stuff i've ever seen for a superhero movie but i love how much weirder and ramey the first spider-man is i i totally get what you guys are saying i still think for me personally I think I like two better than one, even though I like Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin is mm-hmm. is still for me the upper pantheon of what people are trying to reach for when they yes. do when they do a villain that can be big, 
right? When they're no, when they don't have to be an understated villain, when they can be a big villain, like that's what I want, right? In yeah. all these crazy films, it's just like give me somebody who is as, as good as Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina is also obviously incredible, and yeah. we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about. It was very fun to get to see some of them come back and play in the sandbox in the mm-hmm. most recent No No Way Home. Uh, I but right we we've, we've talked about how do these compare to things in the MCU and not to make it th- that kind of episode right. But I do think there's something so unique and specific in what Raimi was able to accomplish. In one and two, and even even in three, right? For as pan as mm-hmm. three is, what he was able to accomplish in three, there is something very human that fits with the superhero mm-hmm. story. Like you talked about, you talked about the very beginning of Spider-Man two with Peter Parker feeling like he's underwater. Like, go ahead and talk yeah. a little about that because that yeah, I thought was and such like, a great point. It it's so it is so human, and some of the best I've ever felt because at the beginning of Spider-Man two. Peter is struggling so hard to make ends meet and he is like barely getting by and he's getting these minor successes, but so many more failures. And every time he gets close to feeling like he's getting ahead of it, suddenly it gets even worse. And like, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who I have worked in, you know, nonprofit mental health side of things for a decade. So it's like, I've had those. And like, I went back to grad school grad school for sure like i've had those times where it's like i don't know how i'm gonna make it to the next paycheck and like you're that feeling of like i am so underwater right now it's it's i've never seen it captured more eloquently in a superhero movie than raimi does in spider-man 2 like and it's you know i mean all millennials I feel like can relate to this. Like so many of us are, you know, have lived this life, especially like right out of school. Like it's so, so accurate of what that feels like to just not be getting by or just barely scraping by to get, you know, get to the next two weeks. And so much of what Peter is doing, like he feels so desperate and frantic and it's, there's so much of that weight and pathos that he, that Raimi and Toby together bring to the table here. Yep, absolutely. I, I do think, you know, even even the action scenes, right? Like we've talked a lot about how Sam, Sam Raimi is able to like build and develop characters, which is something that I think is a great skill and much harder to do than I think people give it credit for, right? Like the way that those movies are written and then the way that they're filmed feel like very congruous. Like they're very together. Like they're they're two products of the same mind. And sometimes, again, not to talk too much about MCU, we'll just say other superhero movies, right? Sometimes it feels like they're done in set pieces and they're done mm-hmm. separate from each other. And they're like, this is this is when they're talking. And then this is when the action is happening. And the, something that I thought Raimi does is that he blends those together so well. Like you'll have a scene like where Peter and MJ are having an incredibly emotional moment in the coffee shop where he's like, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be better. You know, like he's trying to like win her back and she's like, I don't know. And then the car comes out of nowhere and it turns into an action scene. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is so cool that there's, there's so much blending or even during an action scene, there'll, there'll be 
these human moments where like the two people are talking or like on the train scene or mm-hmm. like you know he holds it back and then all the people like give him back his mat you know i don't know there's on this, paper that yeah. train the the train scene the subway scene that it should not work yeah on paper it should be it should go beyond schmaltz into full-blown corniness but it doesn't because of how earnest it is and how much Raimi, like how much he nails all of these people involved in this situation like because you know the you know carefully he's a hero and just like moving him back along the train and all these people who just like agree to keep his secret and it's never said either. It's just like, it's understood. And then the kid brings him his mask and it's, it doesn't undercut itself. And that's something Raimi does so well. And I text about this too. Um, And again, like I love, I love plenty of MCU movies. I think they have also had a very negative impact on, the way a lot of dialogue is written and something yes. Raimi does not do. Raimi does not undercut his earnest heartfelt moments with jokes. With he clips. lets them land. He lets them exist and be earnest and be heartfelt. And then he, he incorporates humor, but not at expense of giving you an out of feeling something for this heartfelt moment. Cause so much of it now is like, Oh, you felt something we better make a joke about that like and add in a little quip to really undercut how it how it plays and that's something Raimi doesn't do and he's so so good at it yeah I think um something that there's been some points made about recent superhero movies and I'm gonna say you know DC as well but there's Mm -hmm. something about like superhero movies are intended to be wide-ranging right they're intended to be broad they are intended to be broad right people don't pump money into those movies hoping that they're a niche film they're hoping that they're broad blockbusters for lots of people but something that i think happens in some of these movies not all of them there is an intention in some of them to make kids entertainment right that that will appeal Mm -hmm. to both kids and adults but it's kids entertainment first and a lot of the other stuff around the craft doesn't seem to be as important as long as these specific moments exist and these specific like characters show up, right? Mm-hmm. So it's more a conglomeration of hopes and dreams necessarily than how much of a craft is put into it. And again, that's what I feel is so unique about the Spider-Man movies is they don't like kids can like them. I liked them as a kid, mm-hmm. but they don't feel like a kid's movie. They and are in all. They're ages not dumbed movie. down. Yes. Yes. They're they're an all ages movie where some of the other movies we are getting are kids first with adult interest involved, and a lot of that now has just become pulling on nostalgia, whereas the Raimi Spider-Man movies one and two really, I mean, three is its own thing and three is still fun. And I have a lot of fun with it, but one and two are much better movies and they, they stand on their own because Raimi was trying to make all ages movies, not kids movies that also appear appeal to adults. He's I'm going to make something that has something for everyone while not 
prioritizing one over the other. And he he made a great couple movies doing that. Right, right. I just, I really do feel like there are such pieces of craft put into this movie that is is just very unique, right? Mm-hmm. I think that even even of the time, if you look at other superhero movies made at the time, you can compare like Daredevil was made around the same time, not near the movie no. that these are. Catwoman, right? Catwoman, great example. Um, so like it's Elektra, same thing yeah. as, as as Daredevil, but like you know what I mean. Like there is something unique about having such a talent direct something like this and that's why i am a little bit hopeful for the strange stuff i i am it'll be mcu it'll be interesting to see how it fits in i don't want them to flatten out all of the things that make raimi what he is as a director as a creator and i hope that his earnest moments are allowed to be that and his silly moments are allowed to be that and his really weird horror genre things i hope those are allowed to come through too so, because if if you're not allowing Raimi to do those things, then you're not making the most of an incredibly talented, genius filmmaker. Right. At that point, he's more of a producer, really, yeah. than anything. Yeah. Which, so, I mean, really kind of is what we've been getting for the past few. I mean, it's right. been, we're bringing on these people who are name and can provide some influence stylistically but i mean kevin feige's really the director right and and so i i want raimi to really be given the sandbox to play in i hope that bruce campbell shows up as an alternate universe doctor strange i would love nothing more than that because i think uh bruce could have been a phenomenal doctor strange riley talked about before he hopped off uh he thought Campbell could have really nailed uh, Doc Ock in mm-hmm. Spider-Man 2, and he would have been perfect for it. Uh, so I, there's so much, there's so much of Raimi and like the foundational stuff for him present in all of these Spider-Man movies he made. And yeah. I think now, the the Spider-Man movies are as synonymous with Raimi or as like iconic as Raimi films as Evil Dead. As Dark Man, as the as these other things, so I think they just they're so they they were lightning in a bottle, and they hit at the perfect time in this you know early early two thousands boom where Raimi just flourished with all of this. Yeah, I mean we talked about it before each one of these movies made eight hundred million. Yeah, you know what I mean. In a and now it was in a, a before like the entertainment lights landscape had bifurcated so much with netflix and things like that but still i mean you know what i mean like they were they were well-loved multiple viewed movies and they're the kind of movies that like lived on in in the public consciousness right obviously toby mcguire was already a huge star kirsten dunst james franco like there are a lot of people that i feel like their careers really continued to blossom post spider-man Right. Yes. I don't know if we get certainly I don't think we'll get like we would get a, have received James Franco's career, which is a different episode. Mm-hmm. But um, you know what I mean? So many so many people, I think, really got their launch yeah. from this. 
Uh, something else, I mean, and so, this is Spider-Man 1 talk, but, I mean, Joe Manganiello in, as Flash Thompson <laughs> in, uh, in the first Spider-Man, it's so great. And I think about things like that. I think about, like, their fight in the hallway and the, like, uh, Toby catching all of the things on the tray, which was done practically, and they did, like, hundreds of takes to get it. And it's like, that is what Raimi is to me. And that is what is so special about what he brings to the table as a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's another thing that we can point to that's very different between these films and possibly an MCU film is just how much of this is actually shot on a street, how much of this is actually shot with practical effects versus with wires, so much wire work. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that stuff like people say like, oh, you you can't tell. I really do think you can. You can you you truly can and it it makes such a difference as as a viewer at least for me anyway it, it just if if i can tell that there is so much choreography and wire work and practical effects going into this i can appreciate how lived in this scene in this world feels so much more right yeah anything else you want to throw in for spider-man 2 that is all i've got which brings us to the end of the episode jeff do you have any final closing points on raimi before we get out of here yeah i i just think that i i have been so impressed in my rewatch of raimi's stuff um with how much like i knew i liked raimi and i was excited for this episode to go back and revisit a lot of this stuff but i i think what i've really enjoyed about this is it's really fun to see directors who just have a stamp right mm-hmm. like they have a style they Auteur have something theory. they're known for like- yeah, yeah, and and not that again, not that every single one of the movies has to be the same, but um, I feel like you see that less, right? You do. It, it seems like movies today are a little bit more like team led or they're studio led or or whatever else it might studio be. led so, more than team led for sure. Yeah, so it's just cool to revisit stuff like this, and and I'm not you know film is not dead by any means; it's just different. And so mm-hmm. I think there are still people today who are doing really good stuff. And uh, Josh Rubin, yeah, we should yeah. have mentioned him. He, you know, he wants to make a Darkman yeah. movie. Campaigning actively, we are with you, Josh. We will yes, help you. We support you, Josh Rubin. <laughs> uh, I mean, Josh Rubin like, did one of my favorite films. Well, I think it was 2021, uh, Werewolf yeah. Within was last. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he would do excellent with Darkman, and, and I would love to see that. That's what I love from josh in in werewolves within is it's very earnest as well it's very silly Mm -hmm. but it is splattery and it treats the earnest scenes very seriously and doesn't undercut them either and that's i think i think ruben would be a great person to take up the dark man mantle would be phenomenal let's Uh, do it but i mean i I'll, I'll close by saying, I mean, Raimi is such an influential filmmaker and such an important filmmaker to so many people. Like, we, we hardly talked about Drag Me to Hell, but that movie is partially oh, yeah. responsible because that was originally the one you were going to pick before we switched yeah, to Dark Yeah, we didn't Man. talk about it at all. Yeah, that's funny. But, I, I mean, Drag Me to Hell was one of the movies I watched at a friend's place on, and I'll be talking about another movie that was at this marathon 
uh, with our friends at Nightmare Junkhead, you might hear me talk about this other movie there. Uh, but Drag Me to Hell was one of the movies my friends screened at a marathon during October years ago that is directly responsible for getting me back into horror. Uh, after years off the genre, after The Strangers ruined my life, uh, I <laughs> went back and finally gave horror another try, and Drag Me to Hell was one of the movies that was like, okay, I, I see what this genre can be, and it's because of all of those hallmarks of what Raimi is and how Raimi makes a movie. And so he's so responsible for getting me so back heavily invested in the horror genre like I am now. But this has been a great time talking about Raimi. I love doing it and could continue to do it for another hour at least. But you guys, thank you so much for listening, especially if you made it this far into the episode. Uh, we will be back with more episodes once a month uh, with more directors, more subgenres, more topics, and we will keep you updated as those come out. Thank you all for listening. Bye.